Hi, this is Jennifer Todd. I'm co-founder of the Basketball Tournament, and this is One-on-One with ADC Partners. Hi, this is Dave Almy of ADC Partners. I guess the theme of this week's episode is all about taking chances, something my guest Jennifer Todd knows really well. Consider some of her rolls of the dice. As a freshman in college, she joined a lawsuit that would become a landmark case involving Title IX. After she landed a dream job in sports, she left it to travel the world for a year and a half. Looking to restart her career, she took another gamble and helped launch the basketball tournament, the first-of-its-kind million-dollar winner-take-all tournament. In our conversation, we'll touch on each of these chapters of Jen's Wild Ride and dive into some of the things she sees as absolutely essential to her success, like finding her voice, trusting her instincts, and belief in the projects she works on. Enjoy. I think most people know you as co-founder of the basketball tournament. But before that ever became a thing, you had this other kind of significant role in the history of sports and sports business and everything that sort of have come from that moment, because you were a gymnast at Brown University in the early 90s, and the university made the decision to eliminate the gymnastics and the volleyball teams. And so what I'm hoping you can do is take a moment and recall what that moment was like and how you and 11 other Brown athletes decided, hey, that wait a minute, that that's not okay, and decided to push back. Can you reflect on that moment for a minute? I was a freshman, actually. I was, I was, I hadn't even arrived on campus when they cut when they cut those teams, mm. and um, and just for clarity, they cut two women's teams and two men's teams. Okay. Twenty five years ago, Title IX was not something anyone was really talking about, right? It was part of the educa- educational amendments of nineteen seventy two. And so it had been around for a long time by that point, but nobody knew anything about it. Nobody was talking about it the way they do now. And it hadn't really been applied to women's sports at that point. This is all still sort of untrodden ground. Yeah. So the other thing some people don't know about Title IX is it applies to, um, you know, hiring and sexual harassment and, and you know, equal opportunities on campus and, and within the athletics department. And so it's it applies, you know, across universities, any mm-hmm. federally funded universities. But again, nobody was even talking about those things either. And so um, when our team was cut, it was made club varsity. And so mm-hmm. I found out through my neighbor, who was also a student at Brown, nobody from the university called me. And <laughs> the neighbor uh, network, the neighbor network. And um, it was and, you know, others of my classmates found out through the newspaper or, you know, no direct means. I so guess. And no formal notification from the university at all. No, no. And um, and so we, we basically were told, look, this is going to be a club varsity team. So it should be equivalent to a varsity experience, except for that uh, you guys will eventually have to come up with your own funding. Um, <laughs> Hooray. Which, eight women, you know, who are in college, um, without a lot of means generally to come up with their own fund. Now our budget wasn't that big. Our coach was still under contract. And so, right. um, we didn't have to cover her salary, but we did have to, you know, cover the rest of the expenses going, going forward, but not, not in that we went, in, I went into campus thinking, okay, this is going to be just like a varsity experience. And we don't really know until we get on campus what that looks like anyway. Right. Um, 
the underclass, uh, the upperclassmen had a much better sense of what that that was. They had actually won the Ivy League championship the year before, so. So, so you come in as a wide-eyed freshman. You don't really know what to expect, but the upperclassmen, I'm assuming, have a different position associated with this, and that's how the ball more or less kind of got rolling. Yes, that's right. And so, you know, when we got on campus, we met them. We're a small team, so we're very right. tight generally. Um, and, you know, they're sort of telling us, you know, generally what we might might be able to expect. But through the course of that fall and into the spring, um, we were locked out of our locker room while we were at practice, the varsity locker room that we were in with all our stuff inside. Um, we were told we couldn't use the varsity weight room. Um, we were told we had restricted access to the trainers. We couldn't compete on certain days because we needed to take over the gym. So as a club sport, you really felt like, okay, we're not on an equal plane. With yeah, sort of deprioritized, yeah. I would say. It's like yeah. the lightest way to say it. Um, and you know, we we sewed our own leotards. I mean, it was it's um, I mean, I look back we, now and like, we all have familiarity with that. I mean, I have to no. do my own too. <laughs> and um, you know, so you know, yeah, I look back and I'm like, wow, that was a crazy time. And we right. met with the athletic director and we basically said, like, this doesn't feel like a varsity experience, you know. And right. um, you know, he was sort of like the decision is final. Huh. And at the same time, in parallel, some of the the more senior members of our team had um, been introduced to one Title IX and to a law firm in D.C. that offered to do it pro bono. Was this a little, <laughs> did you jump in with both feet or was there a little along the lines of, I'm a freshman, I, I don't even know where my textbooks are, or was yeah. this something that really grabbed you right from the beginning? Well, the funny thing is that I was um, a 17-year-old freshman. Okay. I had 17 in the summer that I, before going to college. And so I wasn't even old enough to sign those papers on my own. My parents had to sign oh it. Oh, God. So that's how young and sort of naive we were. But yeah. they, and the, you know, they made no- You couldn't even vote. Yeah. They made no assurances about anything. They were, they helped to guide us. They said, we'll take this case on pro bono. I remember signing the papers. I remember having to get my parents to sign the papers with us. I think there was like a strong feeling that we would just sort of threaten this and then they would you know, reinstate our yeah. $16,000 budget. Mom and dad, can you sign you these know? papers? That'll lead to one yeah. of the most revolutionary law cases in women's sports Yeah, I'm going to sue the school that I just entered. Um, <laughs> they and, must have been psyched. <laughs> um, I mean, go, honey. episode three about my parents you know what I mean? like they're, yeah. they're just, um, just going to start a whole new podcast just dave and jen yeah yeah so, um, <laughs> the case that came out of that cohen versus brown university is a landmark case in title nine and, and i think we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier it's you know it's i think it's hard for people to understand that you know 30 years ago this just wasn't a thing i mean title nine is so interwoven with women's sports now, right? They're just, that's like everybody, cause like, oh, Title IX was the reason why women's sports are as big and as um, consequential as they are today. But, you know, 30 years ago when this case happened, that just wasn't the case. And I'm wondering if you can, can you provide some context for what that was like when the case was going and how it was received at that time and the reaction of people around you? Again, I mean, I think people were just not really knowing yeah. what it was. It yeah. was sort of like, wait, what do you, what do you, 
what is, what is the basis you're even suing them on? Like what, you know, and there wasn't, you know, now we feel all this momentum around women's sports in this country and yeah. globally. And, um, you know, it wasn't anything like that, right. 30 years ago, it was, you know, a lot in, and, you know, in fact, Brown was um, provided a lot of women's opportunities in comparison to other, to other schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they were still, you know, largely in violation of Title IX, just in terms of like, I think the percentage was, you know, 50-50 men to women at in, on campus and 65-35 in terms of the opportunities. And, right. Um, anyone who knows sort of the deeper level of Title IX is you don't have to be at 50-50 if there are not women that want to compete um, or, or people of the underrepresented sex, which are always uh, women, but um, that, you know, it, you don't have to be at 50-50, but you have to accommodate those interests and abilities. And um, so if there's anyone saying we want to compete, you know, uh, opportunities. That's where make- Title IX really starts to kick yeah. in as far as finding those equitable positions for them to be able to compete in. That's right. But you know, so the the reaction, you know, to your original question was, you know, there were, I think, a lot of students around us who were questioning, you know, deeply um, what we were doing, why we were doing it, what was the basis of it. Uh, the newspaper came out, the school newspaper came out very strongly against us. Fascinating. You know, it was really, you know, just to say, like, I think there was a real education process for everyone, including us, but, you know, but um, once we kind of knew what we were sort of signing up for uh, everyone around us of like, does this mean that, you know, you're going to cut men's programs right. to, to get to equality or, you know, to, to accommodate your interests and abilities and, you know, f- like fair questions. Um, but, you know, it, the, that's like the number one question that comes up with title nine and nobody there's, it's not a, it's not a fixed pie. You know, right. It's not this or that. Right. Right. Um, you can always, grow the pie um, or re or shift the pie um, so everybody can compete. And that's right. what we wanted. And that, you know, we were trying to, you know, the other thing that wasn't, that didn't exist 30 years ago was social media. Like we didn't know anything <laughs> yeah. about. PPR. Social media was called a typewriter. Yeah. So like, how are we to kind of make our voices heard? Like make those, make people understand how do you do that education when you don't have those kinds of means, you know, and again, you're, a freshman in college. So it was really interesting first couple months. We were trying to be students. We were also marching down College Hill from the Brown campus to the courthouse, testifying and listening to others testify on our behalf. And um, your freshman year was not like other people's freshman years. No, it was. (laughs) And it was we filed the lawsuit at the end of my freshman year because we gave it we gave it a good year to if this club varsity thing would work. Um, but we filed the lawsuit, I think at the end of my freshman year and okay. then preliminary injunction kicked in, we won that and, yep. we, and kicked in so we could recruit and, and know that we would still have a team while, um, while we continued to, while the c- case continued and we won the case in 1994. I remember my, one of my teammates just writing, you know, with those whiteboards we had on our, on our college, uh, doors like we won you know um in huge black letters and those whiteboards were the original social media they were they were <laughs> like, you needed to find someone you wrote a note on the yeah. hey i stopped um, by to say hi <laughs> and then um we're really aging ourselves here Dave. oh boy um, there are some people listening to this right now going what are they talking about <laughs> <laughs> and then um 
Yeah, and then they appealed to the First Circuit. So we went back to court and um, we won that in 1996. And then they applied for certiorari to the Supreme Court. And that, you know, I didn't know what that was yeah. at the time. And um, the Supreme Court pushed it back down to um, to the First Circuit ruling. And so ultimately we came out on top. It's just this unbelievable process. And again, I mean, I want to keep hammering this point home, but I think everybody kind of takes Title IX for granted now. It's like, oh, it's this thing and it's this law and it's had all this impact. But back in this time, you were going to the Supreme Court to get these questions answered and it was going back and forth and the university was pushing back. And I'm assuming a lot of other universities were backing Brown because they saw what the potential of you winning this case was. So I mean, it's just this, pardon this terribly archaic word, which is going to date me even further, which I'm sorry to say, but it is this just rigmarole of legal morass that has come out and just sort of been this, okay, it's Title IX and it's all settled. And I'm wondering, like, since it has been 30 years and expectations around are just sort of settled in, I mean, has has the resulting 30 years matched what your expectations after the the on the whiteboard we won to like has it become what you thought it was going to be or has it deviated in ways that were unexpected Do you know what i mean yeah well so this was the 50th anniversary this year of title right. nine so um i think we probably all saw a lot of celebration of that and also like a you know real um inspection of kind of what it's done for girls and women in sports and um you know the 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 biggest statistic coming out is that i won't get the numbers exactly right but in 1972 boys had 3.5 million opportunities to play sports and girls had some something much lower now 50 years later girls have 3.5 Three million opportunities to play sports and, and boys have um, also grown in that time. So mm-hmm. we're not 50 years later where the boys were 50 years ago, despite mm-hmm. that we've made huge, huge gains, right? So there's still a lot of work to be done. And, but now, you know, it's like you, again, you feel that momentum, right? You feel, um, you watch the NWSL, you watch the WNBA, you watch women's NCAA basketball, you, you see that these, properties, leagues, teams are, uh, have an upward trajectory for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you hear title nine in that conversation, right? Right. Where it's because we've had a whole generation now of kids to have gone through a system where there were more opportunities to come to the, where they are today. So, you know, it's like half, yes, this is an amazing piece of legislation. It's done so much for, um, for girls and women and then half, like there's also still so much work to be done. And again, it's just, okay. The hand and glove nature of women's sports and title nine just continues to roll forward. Yes. Still work to be done. And I want to transition a little bit to, and we'll use this as sort of the fulcrum for this conversation. I'm wondering how title nine maybe impacted your approach to sports business as you began your journey, post-graduation, post-lawsuit, were there lessons learned during that process that informed how you approached your sports business work life? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, yes. I um, it's I say all the time, it's where I found my voice. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't know I had a voice. Honestly, when I got to college, I was so young. Um, I was trying, you know, we're all trying to 
take on the, the added workload, be athletes, you know, file a lawsuit at the same time. Um, <laughs> as, as you do. <laughs> as you do. And, um, you know, I, 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 but I sort of realized, look, you can really take a stand for things that you believe in or that are personal to you, uh, personal to your own experience. I didn't come out of, uh, out of the lawsuit sort of going, okay, you know, I want to follow obviously a legal path or something like that. It didn't apply to my everyday life, but it did. Mm-hmm. Um, it did apply in the way of like, okay, you know, I have a voice, something to say. And if I believe strongly enough in it, I I can use my voice. And, you know, so the first few years of, of my career, I was, you know, a strategy consultant. I was just trying to kind of figure out my way through, mm-hmm. through independence and, you know, uh, life as a working person and, and I never talked about Title IX. I never, I you know, in I never talked. It was in the past. Not so much. It was in the past. It was like you know, would someone would someone um, hire me and think um, you know she's litigious in nature or something? Uh, okay. Like kind of yeah, yeah. like a rabble rouser. Yeah, and um, you know, and of course, like I, this, it's one thing does not mean the other, um, obviously. Right. But I didn't talk about it because it wasn't. I don't know. It just seemed pretty risky when I was young and um, and trying to make my way through the world. And, um, you know, ultimately I ended up at Octagon, which, you know, and, uh, you know, into sort of from generalist into sports business. I, it, you know, it just really was kind of in the rearview mirror for a while. I didn't. T- Did you enjoy the agency experience? I mean, Octagon is one of the biggest. I mean, they are have an enormous portfolio and carried so much weight, especially back at that point in time in sports marketing, was that a a relatively seamless move for you getting into that kind of world? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I really did enjoy my time there. I was there for a relatively short amount of time. Um, You know, a lot of people come up through the agency world. Yeah. I was a biology major in college and pre-med and I didn't, I didn't take one business class in college. Uh, So I, a lot of, I did a lot of learning on the job as I, as I decided, you know, I was, I, I needed some independence and I, I didn't want to go to medical school right away. And so I ended up taking a, you know, a business job and, um, and then another consulting job in with some health, with a healthcare component so that I was mm-hmm. using, well, what I so that was the college, bridge. Yeah. To, to make the bridge. And, um, and then when I made that, that jump to Octagon, it was, you know, again, to be more of a specialist in something. And I really didn't think I would move into sports business, but I was like, Hey, why not? This is, I have all the skills, of course, like, um, we know a lot of people come come to us and say, well, I love sports. I just want to work in it. But I had, you know, I had all the skills from this sort of service nature of consulting and mm-hmm. um, client relationships and um, strategy, a lot of strategy to to run the BMW account at Octagon for a couple of years and, yep. um, you know, kind of look at their portfolio, execute gold standard execution on all the stuff that they were already doing, but also try to expand their portfolio to things that they were interested in. And um, I did that for a couple of years and the agency experience, I mean, I love being on the service side. I think the downside sometimes is that, you know, you're, you don't get to make the final decision. <laughs> right. So sometimes all the, you know, whether it's in sports or not. Yeah. You don't own necessarily what it is, right? Yeah, the you're final just product, purely advisory. Right. right. Everybody, the, 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 the thing everybody says is like your final product, this beautiful final product that you've worked all these late nights on could end up on the shelf, you know? Um, it didn't, it wasn't so much that at Octagon, you know, I think our, our suggestions were real, real suggestions. And I ended up leaving more for personal reasons than for 
from other opportunities. Let's jump into that because, you know, I think it's like for a lot of people who are interested in working in sports, like you said, oh my gosh, you're, you're at Octagon and you're working on BMW. I mean, well, what an amazing portfolio. They do so many cool things. And then you make a decision to leave that and go travel for a pretty significant period of time. Yeah. What was, can you, what was that decision-making? Was it just like, I gotta, I gotta do this. What, what, what was the, how did that come about? Yeah. I, well, I got married <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, my husband at the time was an investment banker and, you know, probably had never taken like more than two hours off in his life. And, um, <laughs> you know, we went on a, a long honeymoon, a three week honeymoon, and um, we both loved to travel and, you know, went to New Zealand for three weeks and sort of um, oh, good honeymoon. Yeah. And there was some, there were some personal things going on um, on my husband's side that, you know, I think both with his job and his family, um, his mom passed away. And mm -hmm. I think he just was like, I don't know if I can do this, this in this form anymore. And so he's like, I want, I want to, I want to leave. I want to travel for a while. So it was really his idea. And I had just been promoted at Octagon and, um, and you know, to be honest, there weren't that many women kind of in like, you know, leadership positions or kind of moving into leadership positions at Octagon. And so, you know, you always sort of feel like you're carrying a little bit of the weight for everybody else. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to be promoted and then leave. Um, so it took me about six months to make the decision like, okay, you know what? So you both really thought about this. You, you didn't, this was not a spur of the moment, screw it. Let's go travel the world for a few years. This was something you really considered carefully. I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we didn't, we didn't, yeah, we didn't just like drop everything, quit our jobs and go. Um, <laughs> but the but in the end we did yeah, um, yeah. because we, we, we uh, packed up our apartment, rented it to our friends, put all our stuff in my friend's basement in New Jersey, my teammate from Brown and, um, <laughs> and took one backpack each. And that was uh, it. Just literally what's on your back. Yeah. One bag each. And, um, uh, went out to the World Cup in Germany. That was our start. We did Poland and then we did Germany. We had like the first two weeks of our our itinerary planned based around the games, the World Cup games that we wanted to go to and had tickets to. And then um, and then we had no itinerary after that. And Just some of our friends your arms. came back in six weeks, you know. And, and how long did it last? Uh, we came back um, 15 months later. <laughs> so it's a yeah. pretty great excursion that allowed you to really just take it all in, right? I mean, you, how many, how many countries did you visit? 40. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, we started off really fast and then we, you know, we got, we got progressively more tired and, yeah. you know, we went and, and moved and slowed down a little bit, but we went, uh, yeah, Western Europe and um, Africa for several months and then um, Asia for the rest of the time. And, yeah. you know, we would have kept going, but um my husband's grandfather was ill and we came back. So needed to get back. We came back and we thought we'd go back out. Um, and it was September in Boston and we had just been in, we'd just been living in Shanghai. So, you know, just sort of imagine like I was pretty polluted in Shanghai, big city, mm -hmm. like very far away from home. And we came back and um, like it was September in Boston, which is a beautiful time. Oh, yeah. Our were on fire. Um, the air was super fresh and our whole family was here because, because our, you know, his grandfather was ill and, um, it just sort of felt like, okay, we can't, we're like, this is it's time, time to, to, time to set down stakes here. Yeah. 
So there were a lot of places we didn't get to see, but um, such a good experience to expand our worldview. And I didn't really know going in that that's what we would get, but just like kind of being like locals out there and talking to people, um, you know, about their view of the United States or their view of the world. Like, you know, you just, you learn so much. Um, You really realize what you don't. Whenever a recent college graduate asks me for advice, for lack of a better term, like what should I do? What comes next? Um, And even some that don't ask me, and I just feel compelled to tell them anyway, is doing exactly what you said, right? It's such a unique period of time, particularly after college, right? And you did it a little bit later than that, but particularly after college to get out of wherever you are and go exist somewhere else. I lived in Japan for a year. And it was such a transformative experience because you do ha- get this sense of, oh, I can really live on my own and go to another place where I don't really actually speak the language all that well and oh. not just live, like not just keep myself alive, but gosh, learn so much and get so many different perspectives and see what else the world has to offer. So if anybody's in college right now and they're listening to this, just go away. Just, just, yeah. get, out, just get out of here. Yeah. You know, the thing, I mean, going in, I'll just say this: the thing that we thought to ourselves is, look, we could probably do this after we retire, um, after we have kids and we'll be, I don't know, 60, 65 and travel will just be different. Right. But like, if you do it when you're in your early thirties and you're, you know, you can kind of, kind of run very fast. Um, it's a different experience. And, you know, I don't, it was like right in the middle of, um, sort of our career trajectories. And so, you know, it's not always great to take a big pause in, in that time, but in that time, it was very different, right? It was What's very this different. gap in your resume. Yeah. Yeah. But I have no regrets. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I've seen so much of the world and, um, you know, we, we wouldn't take that back. So you come back, you kind of reestablish yourself in the U S you start working for a soccer organization. And I'm wondering at what point did the concept for the basketball tournament begin to germinate in your mind? What, 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 where were the catalysts there? Well, let's, uh, first of all, I mean, uh, it wasn't my idea, right? Okay. It was um, our CEO, John Mugar. Um, it was his idea and it had been germinating for him, I think for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, I left the soccer organization and um, this got sort of got this deck through like a mutual he had hired someone to sort of help him get the idea off the ground, who was also a former consultant. And then I had met that, that guy. Anyway, this deck comes across my desk and it's a, I think it was like a $10 million, 1000 team participative tournament. And um, I actually immediately called my boss, my old boss at Octagon. And I was mm-hmm. like, like, get a load of this, you know? And um, <laughs> Look at this crazy thing. Yeah. And uh you know, and at the, I had been working for like a, you know, a soccer organization in the way that I, it was, I sort of had a little taste of entrepreneurship. So I, you know, my risk profile was, was decently high in terms of like, would I take a risk on starting something totally new? But it was like, wait, what, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but I, but what I, but I did know what, what I could do for them is, you know, he didn't, he hadn't come from a sports background okay. and our other co-founder, uh, Dan hadn't come from a sports background. And, um, but I knew, look, I, I know how from the other side to activate sponsorships, you know, that BMW had taken on, I know how to run events, you know, promotion and marketing, I get that whole world. And so I know how to take this concept and bring it out to market. 
you know, like what we know, I know from the other side, what sponsors are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we created this whole day and, you know, again, consulting experience coming in for flying in from this side, you know, sort of, we created this whole deck, uh, trying to present the idea. I mean, actually backing up, we did try to sell it as a reality show for about a year in the time it was in the time of reality shows and there were networks interested in it, but also interested in owning it in perpetuity if it was successful. And that wasn't really um, interesting to us. And so we said, okay, we're going to pilot this. And um, again, went out to sponsors, really didn't get, uh, you know, a lot of traction people. We had some nice meetings. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we were like, but you know, the what, trepidation around new concepts and things like that. New right? concept, right. Unproven, a little bit crazy, um, you know, so a little bit insane. But uh, yeah, but but also, you know, it's funny too because I want to go reflect back on Title Nine, right? Everybody sort of takes Title Nine for granted back there. But when you started, it wasn't such a, you know, there was no sort of basis, no foundation for understanding that that could be applied here. The same thing with these participatory tournaments. This was very new, and yeah, I think yeah. you you know you can look at the big three and all these other kinds of tournaments that go on like this. This was brand new. This was revolutionary. Again, you find yourself sort of back in that same position, having to be like, no, seriously, it's not crazy. It's yeah. going to work. And it's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, the, look, the mission and the vision were very clear, right? Which is sort of, um, let's try to bring some power back to fans. Let's try to excite competition. Um, you know, uh, you know, you can look at professional sports and it's just a different model, right? It's a different model. There's a lot of the whole bottom bowl is corporate seating. They've got, you know, and, um, you know, it's very, they do things one way and there's always the opportunity to do another. And now you see all these, all these startup sports properties, right? You see um, PLL and you see, um, you know, so many of them and you, it's, they all, we all kind of came up in concert, Uh, you know, not necessarily at the same time. There was like a, and one million dollar challenge. I don't know if you remember that. The big three was after mm-hmm. us. Um, but there were all these sort of million dollar kind of things co- coming up. So it wasn't totally out there, but it was like, yeah, it was definitely a different a different model. Open to anyone. You know, if you think you can win a million dollars and you're, you know, just the guy on the street street next to mine, you know, come out and show I, I, it. I don't. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> And in that first year, we just wanted to see like, hey, will fans follow this yeah. and will uh, players play in this? And they were, I mean, the standards for a tournament at that time were not particularly high. Like it was like <laughs> two teams show up on the court with the referee also there and the game starts on time. And, Some fans in the stands you know, and go. Yeah. And, you know, there were, there were like 17 fans in the stands the first year, but it was, you know, look, again, coming from the background of like gold standard events, right? We just want to pull off a great event. We want people to participate in it. We want, um, we want fans to be interested in it. And we want, you know, to sort of prove out that something like this can work. And there's always luck involved in in, in any entrepreneurial venture, right? Everybody has their luck story. And one of our luck stories was that uh, Len Elmore's son was competing in TBT that first year. And Len came to Philly U where we had that first tournament and he called ESPN. He was like, you got to see this thing. They put it, they, they put our, our final game, which by the way, we let fans vote on where that was going to happen. Nobody really remembers that. And that's like an event marketer's nightmare. Um, but anyway, yes, they voted on Boston. So that was also lucky because a uh, Barstool team made the final 
the final game and their right. court would be Boston. And so obviously, you know, three weeks later, we're playing a, a championship at, at Boston University, but I mean, could have been, very well have been in the cornfields of Iowa. Oh my or, gosh. Or uh, like Yukon, Alaska. I mean, I, you, you, um, no offense, it's just a little out of the way. <laughs> yeah. And um, just I should just also mention that I was six, six months pregnant at the time. Oh, my off. gosh. It's like, well, you um, know what? This, this is hard to put on these first events. But you know what I need to do is I need to amplify the challenge. How can I? Let's get pregnant. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, we pulled it off. And, you know, so that's like our luck story. Right. There's always some yeah. luck involved. And the, and the final product never matches what you originally envision it. But there is there is like a thread. Right. There's a thread that maintains throughout like this is what we're trying to do. And it, it stayed with us the entire 10 years. Was there a moment where you were working with TBT and thought, oh, wow, this is this is working like this is people are really seeing this and it's, it's being, it's being successful. Yeah. The, that, that moment was when I knew there'd be another tournament the next year. Yeah. The first couple of years. When you weren't one and done. Yeah. Do we do another one? Yeah. Do we have another one, you know? And, um, there was a moment where, you know, ESPN, uh, we renewed our contract with them and we knew that there would be a tournament for the, in the next year. Um, and then we could hire people against that. That was really the, the turning point for us. And, you know, very much to, to John's credit, you know, we, he, he wanted to grow this thing slowly. Mm -hmm. Um, so we didn't, we didn't, you know, some of these startup properties, you see them just throw everything in the pot and see if, if that will take, um, you know, you kind of see the whole thing, um, as big as it can be and see if it works. And we were more intentional about how we grew. So in the first couple of years, it was just build a geographic presence, you know, have access to teams on the West coast. Really allowing for that organic growth to the experience yep. rather than trying to supercharge it with something that maybe it wasn't quite ready for. That's right. I mean, that's a, that's a success story. I'm wondering if you, if you could look back right? To 2013, Jen Todd, when this thing is getting started from your position of where you are now, if you could get in the time machine and go back to her and say, do whatever you do, don't do this. Like, or, or what would, what advice do you have in retrospect now that you think would be valuable to know then when you're putting on a new event like that? The, the like, good answer to that is I have so much advice because I learned <laughs> so much and also I'm volume not sure four. Yeah. Volume four. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many directions I could go with that. And also, I'm not sure I would change anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. You learn so much. I've learned so much over the last 10 years about myself, my capacity for, you know, to create something, um, starting a business, um, growing an organization. There's so much. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So it's like, I'm not, I, I, there's so many lessons I've learned in that time. And at the same time, I'm not sure I would change anything. Is there one that stands out to you as being like, that's boy, that's been invaluable to me right up until this very minute in this conversation. Trust yourself, you know, trust and respect. I think are probably the biggest things, you know, trust yourself, your own ability. Uh, if you believe in what you're doing, you know, put it out there, you know, like um, don't hold back. We, we were, you know, there were times that I look back and we were out to every, every basketball operations person we knew, like we were just sending emails wildly, you know, out to people. Um, but, you know, if you believe in something, you know, follow that. You know, it comes up so much in these conversations, the, 
importance of authenticity, right? You know, to be authentic as a brand, to be authentic as a person, to be authentic in your relationships with folks. I think that's intertwined with trust a little bit too, right? If you trust yourself and you believe in what you're doing, it comes off in those conversations with people in that truly authentic way, which spurs the development of the things that you're trying to do, right? Because if you believe in it, then it, people are much more inclined to buy into it versus feeling like this person, A, doesn't know what they're talking about, or you know they don't believe in what they're talking about. They're just quote unquote, selling me on this idea. I feel like that's something that maybe is so it's foundational, but it's so important to what particularly as entrepreneurs, if you don't believe it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's like that comes through in everything you do. If it's something that you believe in, right. It's, it comes through and the sales pitch doesn't sound like a sales pitch. It sounds like something you're authentically interested in and you believe will work. But yeah, I mean, the other thing is like, you know, our time is short. Our careers in some ways are, are short. And so I, you know, really um, spending time on the things that you uh, that you feel strongly about and believe in or like, you know, it's much better use of the time. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you left the basketball tournament earlier this year. What is next for Jen Todd? I don't know yet. That will have to be. <laughs> I was hoping for a scoop. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? It's interesting. I mean, you know this because we've talked about this offline, but I've I've had a lot of conversations that have gone in really very different directions. And I first, I just needed to regroup. I was yeah. exhausted. A little burned out. I was totally burnt out. And it took me a couple months to just say that without shame, because, you know, I was like, I was the person who like powered through. And I'm going to get this done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, like, you know, you're Jen Tide, You just like someone literally said that to me once, like you're just power through, you know? But I was, I, you know, after two pandemic tournaments, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. So yeah, things have gone in options really, open from entrepreneurial to um, very established organizations. So you'll have to tune back in. We'll have um, to do, uh, volume five. My gosh, volume five. We have so much to talk about, Dave. Oh um, my gosh, we could definitely make like a six-hour podcast out of this. But I'm not sure anybody's ready for that. <laughs> I'm sure they're not. Um, I, you know, I think it's, this is one of those moments, right? Yeah. It's sort of like, do you follow, I don't know, what's the priority? What's the priority? And obviously I have my family life to balance out with, um, with uh, these opportunities, but I, I will tell you one thing, the time that I've had off um, has been so lovely in terms of just being able to connect with people that I wouldn't have other connect, uh, otherwise connected with had I been, you know, kind of charging ahead with TBT. And I've met so many really interesting people doing really interesting things um, who I, like, honestly, I just wouldn't have met otherwise. And I think everybody always says like, oh, it's better to find your next thing while you're in your thing. But that wasn't going to work for me. I, I couldn't do that. So um, there is a lot to be said for being able to take that time to take that deep breath and make a decision not based out of, oh, holy crap, I got to get the next job but to have the time to reflect on priorities yeah both from a life standpoint but like from a psychic income standpoint what's going to really supercharge you on your next adventure and it's going to be fascinating to see what that is jen todd as you move on to uh on to your next phase on the thing that does grab you and uh really excites you about what you're going to do um we're going to wrap up 
But before I let you go, uh, we are going to enter uh, the lightning round. I have a series of questions for you that you are unprepared for. And totally unprepared. I'm totally unprepared. And um, I want you to give just quicked, quick, quicked. There's a new word. Quick, <laughs> rapid responses. The first thing that comes into your mind. Okay, you ready? It's going to be bad. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. Lightning round. Okay, you've been to over 40 countries. Where would you go back to tomorrow? Egypt. What's still on your list to visit? Japan. You competed in gymnastics at Brown. What was your least favorite discipline? Bars. I was not strong. I didn't have strong. It's like you either do bars and beam and you're very technically savvy or you do floor and vault and you're like very powerful. And I was more of the floor and vault. All right. All right, all right. So no bars. All right. Uh, just go this way because you were young in college too. No bars. It worked on a variety of different ways. Uh, you could buy a sports franchise tomorrow. What league would it be in? NWSL. NWSL. I think it's a very smart choice right now. Uh, you could be in any athlete for 24 hours. Who would it be? Ooh, that's, I don't even have an answer to that. You don't even have to answer. All right, volume seven. All right, last one. Who is your number one LinkedIn success story? You. That's the answer. (laughs) You got that one right. I I don't even remember it was me that reached out to you or you that reached out to me, but this has been, you're like. At the top. Therapist, counselor. Oh, I'm just so gratified. I see you didn't have to prepare for the lightning round at all. It just flowed perfectly. Well, I'm still going to think about what athlete, who, who I would like to be. All right. We'll tell you what, post it later and we can use that well, as a follow-up to this. <laughs> Jen Todd, <laughs> thanks so much for spending time today. Yeah, of course. Great to do it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this ADC Partners podcast. For more information about ADC Partners, please visit our website at adcpartners.com.